the future shouldn't be something we are afraid of, which I feel a lot from my art, artist colleagues in many ways. There is this weird thing. There's a tension that's always been there between art and technology. And yet, and I've said this before, techne means art in Latin. So there you go. <laughs> Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. Last July, before the Me Too shit really hit the fan, I hosted a panel discussion, a Future Fossils live taping at the Electronic Frontier Foundation Austin chapter monthly meeting. Proposed topic... The Pre- and Post-History of Virtual Reality Surveillance and Swarm Intelligence. This conversation, which was held at Austin's Capital Factory, it's a local co-working space downtown, kind of the cultural center of Austin's fast-paced digital entrepreneurial identity, and without question, the juicy place to hold a conversation that ultimately became a direct challenge to everything we think we know about the future and the narratives of the future that we have inherited. I remember this conversation between an evolutionary biologist, a computer engineer, a lifelong student of theater and social justice, a game design professor, and a web developer who lived through Berkeley in the 1990s, as being rather intense and difficult for everyone in the room. But listening back to it, it seems like it's ripened in the year or so since the recording. And given how every single item on NPR today was about power and sex and trust and evidence and giving a voice to the displaced and questioning the authority of our institutions and attempting to articulate a global humanism beyond the particulars of our identity and our biographical wounding. Well, this just seemed like the week to put it out. So without getting too much deeper into it, I'm really excited to share this episode with you featuring panelists Maggie Duvall, Heather Barfield, Kevin Welch, and Paul Toprak as well as guest appearances from John Lipkowski, Topher Sipes, and others, engaged in what I think is probably somehow both one of the most sweeping futuristic visionary conversations that we've had on this show, as well as probably the most politically engaged and intense episode that this show's ever had. So hold on to your butts. But first, I just want to give a quick shout out to Chinna Mai. I hope I'm saying that right. The newest Patreon supporter for Future Fossils. Thank you and thanks to everyone who has been chipping in a few bucks a month to keep this show healthy and happy with a smooth, shiny coat. Y'all have managed to span the terrifying crevasse that looms between stabler forms of income. And without you, this show would most definitely not be possible. So thanks to everyone who has been digging in over at Patreon, where, by the way, I have a ton of 
free music and art and awesome conversations in the archived posts, as well as a ton of additional stuff for patrons only. Thanks to everyone who's been reviewing this show on iTunes or wherever you're listening. Thanks to everyone who's been telling a friend. I've been meeting some amazing people who were turned on to this show through friendly referrals. So everyone who's been helping spread this conversation as wide as it can serve, I salute you. And that's all for now. Enjoy this episode, and I'll see you next week. Michael Garfield, the host of the Future Fossils podcast, and he can tell you a little more about what that is. Sure. I don't know. Do you guys, would you prefer the moderator stand or sit? Stand. Stand. Okay. So it is. Well, I'm really glad that uh, we get to do this. This is not the first live taping that Future Fossils has done, but it is the first that we've done in Austin, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, A thanks to both John and Kevin for their work organizing all this stuff. Uh, The next two episodes of Future Fossils coming out tomorrow and next week, by the way, are a a special two-parter with John where he goes through the whole history of this organization, and we get into a lot of wild-eyed speculation about the future of a free internet, and we talk about the new Alien movie, and <laughs> that's like every episode of the podcast now, um, but uh, yeah, it's really great, and it's on every every available streaming platform. Anyway, I put this show together because, uh, this, this show meaning the entire podcast, because... I think that much of the conversation around the future is deeply and terrifyingly diluted because it is unmoored from any considerations of basic things like physics or natural history. Most people who are making these sort of you know, techno-progressive pronouncements about the kind of world that we're going to be living in in another 10, 20, 50, 100 years are are not bearing in I mean, it's it's what Eric Davis would call it's it's technostic. It's just the the misplaced literalization or concretization of our displaced spiritual urges onto technology and it doesn't really have any uh, relationship to the evolutionary process or ecological dynamics or you know, the, the principles of game theory, which all this stuff works on. So putting putting a, a thread, drawing a through line between the ancient world and through the present world and into, you know, the spectrum of possible futures and having fun with it is, is a big part of the show. And so without really knowing where this conversation is going to go, when we were talking about putting something together, I said, well, why don't we... Why don't we talk about the prehistory and the post-history of some some buzzword technoculture topics? Because I find that 
there are actually meaningful things that can be said about surveillance and about virtual reality going back about half a billion years on this planet and swarm intelligence definitely even you know maybe as old as four billion years ago and all of these are very uh, thoughtful and eclectic people so I have no idea where this conversation is going to go and neither do they and so you're, we're all on an even footing right now and and uh, I think after a, a short kind of intro wrap it would be fun to open this because there's no reason for us to be up here talking in front of you for two hours without engaging people in the conversation and you're obviously all very well read so why don't we just go ahead and give a round of introductions here and then I'll I'll drop some ideas into the, the pond and see what ripples. Yeah, Maggie, you want to say? Uh, sure. Um, I what what I do a lot of things. I've done a lot of things. I um, <laughs> <laughs> I let's see. I grew up with the web. I was living in the Bay Area in San Francisco in the late 80s and early 90s and never thought I'd be involved in technology. I just wanted to be an artist, and then it all got jumbled together. Um, got involved in all sorts of interesting things like Mondo 2000 and, and Burning Man and so on and so forth. Um, I uh, got a little tired of the constant input, so decided to leave it all and go to New Mexico. Got married, had a baby, got divorced. Um, and then headed to Austin in 2005 and found out that most of the people I knew here I'd met before, though never in person, because we were all working with the same people in the Bay Area, so I thought that was highly amusing. I'm, um, I've been a former EFF board member. I've been a web developer since 95. I'm an event producer. Um, I'm a minister of spiritual science. I'm, uh, I do all sorts of things. So let's say my, my current focus now is in um, experience design in, in all its forms. And that's my passion right now, whether it's events or what? You didn't say what you mean. Oh, <laughs> Satan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to my kingdom. Um, I'm Maggie Duvall. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, yes, you're done. Okay. Um, well, that's going to be hard to follow because that's super impressive. <laughs> um, let's see. Hi, everyone. My name is Kevin Welch. I'm the uh, current president of EFF Austin. I got the job after I tricked John into giving it to me, um, by which I really mean he tricked me into taking it on. <laughs> so um, let's see. A little about, about me. I um, am actually a native of Austin, Texas, which is a rarer and rarer thing these days. Um, I also have a long history with the web and digital culture. Um, I was involved in online education long before uh, online universities were at all a hip or normal thing. From a young age, I was taking classes from uh, Stanford University over the internet from the mid-90s on, so I've been on the web for quite a while as well. I've, um, I've always circled this culture in a lot of ways. Um, and um, I guess professionally trained, I'm actually like a bioengineer with a degree that I got out of Caltech. Um, I basically got disillusioned with the research life and found it too limiting in a lot of ways intellectually. So I came back to Austin and bounced between a number of odd jobs. I now basically work as a web developer and kind of a cultural rabble rouser <laughs> as president of BFF Austin. Um, and I organize fun things like this. Um, 
anything other relevant to the conversation. Um, so I guess vaguely relevant to talking about this, other than that I think about these things a lot. I my, my degree in bioengineering gives me something of the same biological perspective on these things Michael gets uh, from his former wife as a paleontologist, which I don't believe he mentioned, but that is awesome. Right. Um, but um, and also just the fact that I have been involved in various alternative communities and I'm very much attuned to the internet as a tool for allowing alternative community collaboration um, and particularly ways that these communities can operate and have this technology be liberating and not oppressive. So um, that's probably enough said. I will take it on to other probably more impressive people. <laughs> that must be you. <laughs> uh, I'm Paul Toprak. I'm, I'm going to be the boring one on the panel. I'm sorry. Um, and because uh, I got an engineering degree as my undergraduate. Uh, so you got to have one of those people in there. And it was chemical engineering, so that's really boring. I tried that. I couldn't hack it. <laughs> you mean like printing your own drugs? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's pretty boring. Uh, I was actually uh, uh, born and raised here myself, uh, one of the few in the proud. And. Um, I don't know what to say because I've been done a lot of stuff. Been there. You, know, you, get, you get to a certain age and yeah. you're like, wow. I was thinking there was something I saw on the internet. That <laughs> sometimes you just sit down and you think, well, I've done a lot of shit in my life. And um, so I'm not exactly sure where to begin on this. Uh, credentials, BS, chemical engineering, MBA, PhD at, uh, in instructional technology at, at UT. Uh, and now I'm running the game development uh, program at the University of Texas, uh, and there's a lab there. I kind of do that too. And, um, I, I I think about the future, but I don't try to think about it too much because I seem to be very very bad at predicting. Like for instance, in November, I predicted somebody was going to win. I turned out to be wrong. Uh, in fact, and I realized a couple other predictions I tried to make in the meantime, and, I've, and they were wrong. And these were like near-term predictions. And the idea that I could actually try to predict something out more than like you know a day in advance seems to be uh, you know not, not oftentimes not productive. But I'll try to do my best here and. Um, Though I, I have to admit that I got off the plane from a transatlantic flight on Saturday night, so my brain is somewhat here, probably <laughs> halfway across the Atlantic. Um, so let's have fun. Um, I'm Heather Barfield, and I am also a native Austinite. What? Goodness. What are the odds? Um, <laughs> I'm probably, I don't know where I fit in all of this. I'm on the EFF board. I'm sort of in the head of the Digital Arts Coalition, which is a loose term of meaning people that like to use technology with art in various means. I'm a theater director and producer, writer, performer. I've been making theater for over 25 years in Austin. Um, but I did get an undergrad degree, if we're going to do this, in anthropology. Uh, I was a, a social anthropologist, and then um, and I focus primarily on uh, Native American cultures north of Mexico, which is going to be relevant a little bit later in this conversation, I think. Uh, but then I went and uh, merged um, my love of anthropology with my love of theater and went to NYU Performance Studies and worked with some of the top people in the field of performance studies, like Richard Schechner and... Uh, Barbara Kirschenblatt Giblet and, and uh, uh, people on sort of the frontier lines of what it means to to, to perform, right? What does it mean to uh, 
and we even talk in performance studies around, uh, even in computer technology, the performance of computers, you know, to, to compute is a kind of performance in and of itself. So I can get really geeky and heady talking about that, which is why I went and got a PhD <laughs> in performance as public practice here at UT Austin. And my focus is actually on um, a very niche kind of, like, kind of performance and very experimental um, I'm sort of obsessed with immersive theater, but I hate that term. And um, theater is on a brand new spanking fun journey right now because we are competing with technologies. A lot of theater makers think that we're competing with technologies, but I don't see it as competition. I see it as enrichment and enhancement and... Um, investigation of what it means to be human because for me that's what it's all about making theater making art is really a reproduction of our own human experiences and I think that the future shouldn't be something we are afraid of which I feel a lot from my art artist colleagues in many ways I know there's a dancer in the room I don't know but there's there's there is this weird thing there's a tension that's always been there between art and technology. And yet, and I've said this before, techne means art in Latin. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, there's your panel. There it is, yeah. Yeah, and I am super unprofessional, um, but I did go to school for paleontology and worked as a scientific illustrator for a few years before I started writing uh, for Are You Serious at H Plus Magazine, as well as a uh, social media streaming music platform called Igly that was on track to be Spotify about two years before Spotify existed and uh, never managed to convince all four major music labels to sign on for a service where they give the music away. So I have a lot of thoughts about timing and how sometimes being ahead of the, the curve of history is just as bad as being behind it. Uh, but then again, the deeper you look into the past and you realize that so many of the things that we talk about as being really prevalent and unique to this day and age have precedence in the, if not just human antiquity, then like dating back to like before multicellular life, that really there is a certain continuity to things, and that's that's where I find both a sense for the sort of ever unfolding present that that challenges uh, narratives of progress or decay, but also a um, a sense of like a continuity that allows me to not be afraid of how, th how fast things are changing now. And I, that's that's really key here. And that's, again, that's sort of the core of the conversation about the ways in which these platforms and technologies and conversations are that we're heralding as emergent or novel uh, may actually just be humans sort of rediscovering something that's been the case for life on Earth for a very long time. And one of those is, just to put this out there, one is you know, swarm intelligence, which we see on display in slime molds and all forms of new social insects. That's 
you know, hundreds of millions or billions of years old. Then you have surveillance. I wrote as a Google Glass Explorer, I wrote a three-part essay you can find online called The Evolution of Surveillance that traces the uh, predator-prey co-evolutionary conflicts in the, the evolution of new sense organs and new modes of intelligence gathering dating back to the Cambrian explosion and the evolution of the eye 548 million years ago and says that you can, if you know, following information theorist Richard Doyle at Penn State, you know, he makes the point that every time you put up a new security camera, you find a new blind spot and that there is an intimate relationship between entropy as a driver of the evolutionary process and these increasingly invasive or uh, inclusive systems of data gathering and, and uh, you know, the extraction of insights. So, um, and then the other one would be virtual reality. And, you know, recent, last few decades of neuroscience research has made it really clear that what we consider to be reality, full stop, plain old, boring, not mixed, not augmented reality is in fact actually a very high level simulation or uh, extraction and, co and collation of sense data into something that is essentially virtual and that, that the world that we navigate is a sort of fiction or fabrication that we're actively participating in at a level that, it, that just obliterates the sort of naive realist stance of you know a modern rational point of view. So, to me, it seems like a lot of these, a lot of the spaces that we're getting into with these technologies are changing the way that we understand the, how things have always been, and we're starting to notice more and more that this, uh, you know, like the oldest forms of life on Earth are communal, massively communal superorganisms uh, like the stromatolites, the, the big bacterial colonies that still exist off the, sh the uh, coast of Western Australia. So I don't know. I don't know where to, where to go with all of this, but um, we, have a, we have... I have a thought. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> yes, I don't have to have a thought. <laughs> well, I'll just, I'll just, I was thinking about what we were going to talk about tonight, and I woke up this morning and... I'm going to... On my... Yeah, please. This was on my mind. Um, uh, well, I was thinking about the fact that... Uh, okay, so I was just telling Kevin what I thought was funny. You're all Austin natives. I was, um, I was born at Guantanamo Naval Base. My dad was naval intelligence. So I grew up in a culture that was all about surveillance, and I was watched. I have been watched since I was small, and you learn how to hide. So that was one of the thoughts I um, wanted to bring up. <laughs> the other thing... So I was in that culture of um, esoteric knowledge um, through the sort of like idea of shadow government because I know it exists because of the deep state. Exactly. <laughs> so there was that on one hand, and then um, bear with me as I get to my point. On the other hand, my mother raised me on esoteric wisdom and metaphysics. And we'd have these great conversations. She'd always share all these great books by all these futurists and um, deep thinkers of all kinds. And I remember one time we had this breathless conversation where she goes, 
Maggie, she didn't quite do it like this, but like, and she's, because she was always excited about this stuff. She said, we're going to start inventing all this great stuff that will model us, model to us in a way that we can understand what already exists. So when you said that thing about, so so the whole idea of, um, well, like, uh, what I want to say, interconnection, right? Then we have the web, right? But, but. You know, bear with me back when people were just starting to talk about these things. When you don't, when you can't experience something viscerally, it, it, it doesn't, you don't grok it, right? So we have to come up with all these technologies to help us see these new ways of being. So I want to hurl that out there. And then the other thing was that, oh, it was a great deep thought. And it just flew out the window. Um, Oh, oh, oh! The other thing I want to say, I've been, I've been wanting to bring this, this thing up forever. I brought it. I asked this question on the interwebs on Facebook, and I said, I keep having this experience for the last five years or so, where I'm noticing what feels like a tensile breakdown in a hologram. I see it out of my peripheral vision. It looks like things going. It's like you're seeing the holodeck behind it. And so everybody gave me all this advice. Oh my God! You have a brain tumor. Um, you're, you're having, you know, ocular migraines. I was like, for God's sake, you know, just play with me here. I know I'm not. I, you know, I'm going to die one day, but that's. I know this is not it. I just have this sense that there's some kind of consensus reality that's breaking down. And I was curious if anybody else was having experiences like that or read about it. But I know I'm crazy, but I know I'm not that kind of crazy. So that was my other thing I wanted to throw out into this conversation. Well, it's funny that you mention that because it <laughs> brings to mind an article I was reading just the other day in the New Yorker, and it was very interesting because it kind of it ties into these questions of sort of constructed reality, a virtual reality, as it were, which even the real world, in many ways, is a virtual reality. And this article really drove it home because it was all about your sense of taste. Specifically, your sense of taste is not an isolated thing. What you taste is highly intertwined in a synesthetic fashion with all your other senses. They've done research where they can show that how sweet you find something, how crunchy you find it, these can be dependent on cues from your other senses. Like, for instance, you will think a potato chip tastes fresher if it crunches louder. Like, you will taste a difference. And this is not just some false thing. Like, it's a very measurable, noticeable effect in how people perceive things. So, all the time, we are mediating with something of a constructed reality. And, I mean, I think a lot of us have been having some sense that something's breaking down recently just by virtue of we all seem to have a hard time agreeing on what's true anymore, what reality actually is. And it's all well and good to say, well, those people are wrong, but maybe we should dig a little deeper and ask, is there something deeper going on about why we're all disagreeing suddenly? And I'm throwing that out there. <laughs> I guess I'll throw in, uh, go down the panel, I guess I'm next. Uh, actually, I'm very concerned about uh, the subject of this is being a, our existence being a virtual reality. Um, I think that's that. It, it, if it is true, um, it might be true, uh, but then we should ignore that fact. Uh, 
because if we live our lives that way, then uh, we'll have no meaning in our lives. Um, it is this is the social constructivist uh, relativist theories that have been floating around now for thirty or forty years, uh, which has led us to this um, no lo- no longer shared uh, ideas of what is truth and what is not true. Granted, there may not be anything that's true, but once but we have shared ideas of the things that are true, then then you would have uh, existence that's going to be easier and better for for people as we see now the fact that we have um, people who, it's hard to know what truth is anymore, which leads to all kinds of social strife. Uh, if relativism is supposed to work, then it needs to figure out, like, everything's relative to everything else, then nothing is nothing is true, nothing is solid. Uh, our lives are just flimsy uh, structures then I don't think we're going to, I don't think that's going to lead us down to a, a good path. And I think this is why, that's how we are now. We've gone down this path, and now we're finding that, and, and what has happened is the more conservative people have picked up on this concept of, uh, oh, by the way, truth is relative, uh, that's been propagated by academia for many years now, and now have used it as the sword against the people who have propagated it. So as um, as an artist, as a theater maker, I'll say this. Um, I think we need to be in touch with our emotional states of being to understand our truth. And that through art making, through storytelling, whether it's virtual or not, this is how we reconnect with who we are. Now, who we are, do we want to be human or do we want to be something other than human? Uh, that's, I think, one of the big questions of our time right now. I mean, is the cyborg the ultimate human? Is the, you know, the, the hybrid human, you know, the post-humanist human? I mean, what are we aiming for as a species right now? And, um, you know, I don't, I mean, all of these things sound pretty adventurous to me, but then again, I'm a storyteller, you know, and storytelling often involves conflict and tension. <laughs> um, and, you know, that tension is what keeps us engaged and caring about the world. I think that is when we lose um, attention, when we lose even the question, is this real or not? That's when we go into apathy. That's when we forget, you know, how to care about anything. Um, I did want to say, like, back to other people somewhere over there, <laughs> this is something that happened, that um, we're being inundated with so much electricity all the time. You know, there's that, that has an effect, I think, as us as human beings. Maybe I'm the kook in saying that. But also, we don't see starlight anymore. We don't see in our cities. We don't, we're not able to look up and create the mythologies and the, and the, the, the sense of wonder. Now our sense of wonder is directed towards the technology, into this, into tiny, into this, right? Into this, right? Instead of this, which is more expansive and wider and bigger. And I think that it's very important, in my mind, if we're thinking about the future, to keep that expansiveness as we explore technology, as we explore whatever those frontiers may be, which is also a very problematic conversation anyway because there's a lot of, you know... uh, 
I mean, that's the, the language of the colonizer when you talk about frontiers and like mm-hmm. conquering, you know, what the mysteries are out there. So we have, so I, you know, try to be conscious of that as well. Um, and then, uh, of course, the Buddhists say nothing is solid. <laughs> you know, nothing really is solid anyway. So that's all I got to say for you. I'm going to turn this television Please do, off. Please it's been annoying me in the background. We do not need it if you can figure Speaking out Speaking of inundated by electricity. Oh, look, there's a virtual reality beaming in the screen. Where is it? It's a smarter yeah, TV yeah. than me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there we go. There, yay. We win. <laughs> For now. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, actually, part of part of the, the framing of this that I, you guys just have already jumped into is the notion that there's there's a prehistory, a history, and a post-history, and that as as Douglas Rushkoff talked about in his book Present Shock, post-history, which is what we're living in now, one of the characteristics is that that defines it is narrative collapse that. Fake news travels faster than the fact-checking and the debunkers, that we are approaching a, a moment that I find really interesting. Uh, I'm working on some short fiction about this right now, where the artificial intelligence is able to convincingly spoof audio and video. And so what is currently considered admissible, concrete third-person evidence in a court of law is about to completely fall apart. And we're no longer, we're moving into a space where we can no longer truly trust our senses. And I would say like, in some respects, the the Cartesian questions about where we stand with relationship to our, the the raw data of our experience, uh, if in fact it is raw data, is being democratized. That now you know it's it's no longer just a simple leisure, uh, scholarly armchair kind of a question. Like, am I being tricked by a demon? It's like Ex Machina when they were debuting the film at South by Southwest a couple of years ago. They actually set up a a Tinder bot with the actress. I forget her name from the movie. The woman who oh, plays the Tinder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She plays the the robot yeah. in the film. And they have they had this Tinder bot basically uh, trapping random men on the app <laughs> and saying, oh, you know, like, oh, you're cute. Oh, swipe right. And then and then it's it's sending them messages about like, hey, you should come to my movie. And now we're we're at this point where be, as we uh, wrap all of our interactions in this layer of intermediation. Uh, you know, like David Byrne recently wrote an essay in which he said that it seems like the main project or the main product of the internet is to minimize the amount of necessary human interaction in our lives. <laughs> and like you think about the way that our first interplanetary missions seem to be shaping up, it seems like from this moment forward in human sto- in the in the human story meta story. Whenever we go to a new place, this issue of the frontier, whenever we, we venture somewhere new, we send robots and the internet ahead of us. You know, and so it's, it's always going to be a, a, a robotic mission before we send people there. Or a weapon. 
Yeah, or a weapon. And so you get this issue of there is always a layer of, like, won't it be great when we can, re- like, I was just up in Montreal and I could point my phone at the street sign and read French in broken English like that. And that's great, except it clearly isn't accurate, you know, and, and the, the, the better it gets, actually, the more pernicious this issue becomes because it becomes harder and harder to tell how other agencies are interpreting and delivering the world to you. And so this is, I feel, where these three kind of, you know, keystone topics, this issue of virtual reality, this issue of surveillance, and this issue of swarm or distributed intelligence or however you want to look at that, where these three things come to a head because as we are uh, navigating a sort of, if you will, post-singular moment, you know, I really do think that there was at least you know, for the sake of storytelling, I really do think that there was sort of a uh, a shift around in and around 2012, where we went from more or less agreeing on reality to more or less not agreeing on it. And it can be argued that that's that our generations, the the lifetimes that people are having now, are the lifetimes within which we saw this punctuated shift from a more or less linear comprehension of history and of, of reality to a kind of ecosystem of competing epistemologies. And when it really gets to the point where we can't, as human beings, detect whether our, our recordings and our communications are accurate, we need to pioneer new ways of, of coming to consensus where there is no ground anymore, you know, where we're actually, you know, what's beyond a third person point of view, a fourth or a fifth person point of view, you know? Are you talking about authority? Yeah, where does the authority come from? You know, how do we establish authority? I think, you know, uh, Chris Brown, you you mentioned um, the blockchain and and the Wired article on fake uh, video and audio suggested that microphones might now have to might now register every recording on a blockchain so that it can be, you know, verifi- verified with triple entry ledgers and that kind of thing. And it's like, so. See, that's yeah. about, the, the blockchain thing is about decentralization. And uh, it could be that you're talking about moving from uh, the concept of a fixed authority to a, a distributed or decentralized authority and just kind of trying to figure out what that would look like. I mean, we used to think in terms of like, well, we, I worked on a paper called Emergent Democracy, and one of the things we were uh, concerned about was in Emergent Democracy, which our concept was that it would be sort of a headless system for organizing and governance and that sort of thing, but um, where does leadership come from there? Where does authority come from there? Um, and it felt like it would be kind of fluid and that it would pass from you know one subjective entity to another and not necessarily be fixed in a particular person. Democracy kind of addresses that where they define roles, but the, the roles can be energized by different people in the system. Well, I, I was thinking about, you know, with the breakdown of the consensus, you know, that what we all believe in. For me, I mean, I'm 
you know, the fake news and all that is scary, but I'm reveling it in it because it's like I've always had I've always like had this thing in me that was like, don't tell me who I'm supposed to be, how I'm supposed to be at this point in my life. Like, you know, everybody's, you know, if I was doing what I was supposed to right now, I'd be like, I'm a middle-aged woman doing blah, blah, and I'm preparing for my retirement. I'm like, fuck you. I mean, seriously, <laughs> let me do that. If somebody wants to do that, that's fine, but that's not my story, right? And I don't want anybody being the authority over me, but I also don't like being the authority over somebody else. When I, when I was in a management position, at a company in California, I hated it because I didn't want anybody to do anything that I wouldn't do myself, right? And I didn't want to, like, you know, like, but, um, but I've, I've, been, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I've, you know, as I've tried the different constructs of leadership and stuff, like, I don't really like that. I don't really like that. I'm noticing there's something about, I'm going to get a little woo-woo here, but there's something about developing trust in an internal kind of compass and not basing it on everyone else's whatever that allows collaborative leadership to, to, to emerge somehow. I don't know how or why or what, but it's like the more I personally like go and get out of a hierarchy and into more of a distributed, it's like there's flow, there's ease, and that's all I have to say about it. It's just something I've been thinking about a lot lately and what the protest about. Yeah. I just lost my train of thought. I wanted to add, so my personal background is I grew up in communism, and I have special interest in collaboration in communities, but not um, on the capitalism side, because growing up in communism, you know, I grew up with that sense that the government is an institution, it's there to, you know, F you, essentially. You accept it or you just waste your life, you know, fighting a system that can't, that's already broken. So in coming to America and capitalism, I'm, you know, highly... I love the American dream, but capitalism is, and democracy can sometimes be counterproductive to each other. And what I wanted to add, and the reason why I'm adding my background, is just that's where my point of view can come from sometimes, in having some limited experience as a young child with communism. And what it sounds to me like, we're fighting to find the authorities, which are the masses. You know, we vote with our dollars in a capitalistic democracy. So the masses organize the authorities. They, they become the centralized new institutions of the norm. But because we have more access and there's you know more capital available to us to do to act and live and do whatever we want and say whatever we want, and we can publish our works and we can live off our lifestyle where we can build huge startups and pitch our ideas and then get funding and just become like exactly you wrote about in the book. So we create the same systems unless you, the futurists, get us new visions that we want to participate in. And that's why I think, you know, I moved to Austin. It's a, it's a huge innovation out there. There's just so many opportunities. But even myself as an entrepreneur, and I'm working with great teams and great, great minds, let's say, not even just great teams, just great minds, I still can't find the models, even 20 years later, um, to truly be able to allow me to learn as I grow and collaborate at the same time because we've become so, uh, and I love capitalism. I just think that technology, just like science, has brought us to the stage where the spiritual practice of the West has become capitalism, yet we won't acknowledge it because we have funny feelings about money, which has no feelings, it's just a tangible good for an exchange. We talk about markets instead of exchanges. 
and we talk about the end, you know, the tangible that we receive out of something, like an experience, so we want to quantify it, uh, versus the actual, you know, just experiencing it. The science mind wants to qualify, quantify, take it apart, and then rebuild it. So I'm just here wondering what the successful collaborative models that you have experienced that we can learn from are, and what do you hope to see in the next 10 to 20 years? Because as I sit here, I don't think we're changing too fast. Like, let innovation, that's supposed to be the acceleration engine of any uh, any system, right? Innovation is like that point where you have so much stress and pressure, you have to create something new because the old just doesn't work and you're going to go do it whether you you break down or not. It's not the idea of this innovation acceleration that we have today that it's all about the good of the people. It's almost like, I, I just find it really interesting. So what I'm wondering is, because you're working, you're running the gaming department, you said? Um, I, I, I try to. <laughs> I don't try to do that, so I really respect that. But what what are new worlds? What are concepts world? Who is designing the future that we are going to conceptually rise up to and recreate in our real worlds, just like we've done with the internet and information technology? What do you What do you guys see happening in that world that we can take inspiration in and support? Because I like to vote with my dollars and everything that I do, whether it's time or anything else. And I'm looking for those models, and I frankly don't know where to go. The organizations have become, you know, just I don't know where to go. And I'm looking right now for business models, collaboration models to implement into my own life, into my with the money that I have and the work that I do every day. And yet I struggle. So where do well, um, I immediately chaining off that one. First of all, I highly recommend you come to next month's meetup because we're specifically going to be talking about certain redesign strategies for the Internet to focus on less hierarchical, more peer-to-peer, more driven by actual real human interactions. So that's the first thing I would suggest. But, you know, so I, I did a bit of preparation thinking about all these topics and prep for this. And... Um, Michael, I actually respect you. (laughs) No, um, so I wrote, you know, so I I was reading up a bit on my swarm intelligence and actually digging a little bit into the math, just a little bit. That recalled my college days, good lord. But, um, but, um, and so basically, I started really thinking about this idea of the swarm intelligence and just the emergent behaviors of these simple rules of these individual agents leading to something that seems way smarter than any of the individual sum components. And it really kind of hit me that what is the ultimate swarm intelligence but human beings on the internet, actually? That we are individual intelligence agents. We are operating under ultimately, while complex compared to maybe an ant, ultimately, if you boil it down, fairly simple rules of how we go about our lives and survive. And we, we bemoan needing some kind of higher, almost global, almost more spiritual or cosmic perspective. And one almost has to ask if the Internet is not capable of generating that as an emergent behavior and an intelligence that seems greater than any of the humans who built it up. And so the question is, what is it about our current Internet that is preventing this intelligence from emerging? And I would... Um, sorry, did, did you want to jump on that? Oh, no, no, no. Oh, sorry. Um, and I would argue that one problem we're having is very much rooted in the current hierarchical nature of the Internet. Specifically, um, to tie it in a bit to the other topics of, um, of like sort of virtual reality, 
one could argue that, to, to use the technical terminology of the field, the internet it mediates our reality, basically. It is a tool whereby a virtual reality is constructed and mediated between participants. And there's sort of the question of, well, who controls that tool of the mediation and what reality are they feeding us? Okay, so first I just want to acknowledge that uh, a lot of what you're saying, we live in the United States of America. We've got serious problems with race and gender and technology. I'm saying it again because it's actually where the artists are leading us when it comes to we need more diversity, we need, we need more inclusion in all of these fields. And that's how it's going to infiltrate the capitalist free market system, et cetera. It may actually crumble it because... What would it be like if women made the same amount of money? What would it be like if more people of color were heads and CEOs of tech industries, et cetera, et cetera? Okay, so I just want to put that in the room. Um, also, virtual reality in, as like a tool that can be, is a tool that can be used to empathize with other people's experiences. So right now, I'm trying to um, gather some uh, Native American VR artists who basically are doing 360 VR uh, video footage and um, other uh, diving into the Native experience. They're also collecting Native languages that are dying in the United States right now um, and capturing that information and that knowledge. Um, with these technologies, you know, it is a double-edged sword, but gosh darn it, it, is it awesome to be able to be in the res and see levels of poverty, levels of struggles that we probably don't have access to necessarily in order to educate us about what's going on in other... I know that there's also a company in Austin that has a VR, what's it like in the world of a sex trade um, mm -hmm. woman, right? So there's the free market again in sort of the ugly side, especially for women. And so what would it be like to live the life of, you know, a, a young woman who is basically owned, right? Mm -hmm. And and yet we can also have VR experiences of, like, I just saw something recently of, like, I chicken, where you get to see the live the life of the chicken. And what's it like to be in the chicken coop and lay in the eggs and with the roosters chasing you, you know? So there's, there's like, there's so much, like, like potentiality for us to not only understand ourselves, but other aspects of, of the world that we live in that hopefully can answer questions that we don't even have the questions for yet because we don't, we, we're not stepping into that world. I mean, as, as uh, my, my, my friend Caroline Old Coyote was saying, you know, when you're wearing VR, you're stepping into the moccasins of another person, literally for, for one. So it's, it's really kind of neat what's happening, you know. Yeah, that's what interests me so much personally, and I don't need to be up here at this time at all. Oh, no, we, but, you're part of the conversation, um, please. I just, when it comes to that idea of open innovation, I think it has, it has allowed me to tap into a collective intelligence. But I can't talk about that openly because it's hard to define. This is a highly intellectual uh, group. I'm sorry, you guys are amazing. Um, however, that's not the world that, you know, the main street, everyday Joe operates in every day. And I just feel lucky to be able to even understand two words of what you're saying. Um, but my, what I constantly come back to is that VR experience is very similar to the internet experience where you're alone. You are alone wearing a headset, even though you might be part of Not in the theater VR world, but yes, yes in true. general. That's true. Right. Okay. Yes. But my experience of it and the way that I experience it as a person, even though it's a new experience, I am aware of my aloneness. Uh -huh. That's where science and technology and also... Capital, like 
capitalism in a way fail us and give us all the opportunities in the world, but we just have more alone experiences and we start to feel lonelier. It's our body's intelligence and the reason why we share, you know, spaces with others and we have intimate partners and we learn how to trust ourselves better because we have to listen to our body's intelligence in case we can't, don't know how to protect ourselves in survival too. And the internet has allowed us to have so many more reference points, but it has not solved any problems. It's just another system of exchange. Instead of capital, now we exchange information. And is information more valuable or not? I don't know. Are experiences more valuable or not? I don't know, because I have experiences with and without collaboration, with and without internet, and, you know, because it's me, I have similar experiences in all the world that I operate in. Um, I just wonder where is where are where can I go to um, experience and find out what previous mistakes we've made in collaboration models that promote w- without an end result. You know, just where can I go to experience them? Let's, let's go within. Let's, let's pin that and allow that question just to fuse yeah. the rest of this. Um, in that vein, I think one of the things that I would kind of put to you and see where you stand with this is that when we're asking questions about strategies that we would take or dispositions that we would take with respect to the future, with respect to innovation, I mean, arguably, I, I've been a part of a lot of, and I know this is true of you for sure and you also probably, I've been a part of a lot of flawed visionary organizations. No, that <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anything about that. That, that, that um, I mentioned, I work at the University of Texas. And and what you see in a lot of these cases is people thinking, first of all, that it's it's their job, and second of all, that it's their burden to create something new. And I guess like. Something that I'd kind of like to propose counter to that, uh, counter to that that uh, pioneer attitude of taking a so-called white space venture. Like I was discussing this with uh, artist Daniel Rosenberg in a previous episode of the podcast about about virtual reality and saying the idea that this is just this blank slate upon which we can project our imaginations and build something, you know, completely ex nihilo is absurd in the same way that it was absurd for Europeans to come to North America and act like nobody was living here. And I have the same issue. You know, this is this is actually a big thing that's that's being um, great, thankfully, is being discussed by people that are talking about the you know looking for landing sites for a Mars colonization mission. It's like, where do we land where we have a, we stand a decent chance of finding life, but are not going to like accidentally destroy what's already there. You know, in the sense, the Martian McLuhan sense, the technology is prosthesis. What do we stand to lose by assuming that these media like virtual reality do not? already have characteristics or even sort of like a, a geography or even like perhaps like entities or inhabitants. You know, this, the, uh, like Charles Strauss's novel Accelerando focuses heavily on 
the issue of digital of civil rights for digital entities. You know, at what point does it become necessary for us to regard the interspecies relationships of a forest as an individual with le- with the rights to legal protection, or you know, a botnet as something that that has you know the right to continue in some sense and. I think it's, you know, given the precedent of previous generations, the fact that, like, just over 100 years ago, it was still legal to own, like, that you owned your children in this country. They were your property. Um, I mean, it's a legal guardianship thing now. It's, you know, it's dicey. But, like, I'm always curious about in what ways, first of all, are we... Are we emphasizing innovation inappropriately because it is burdening us with this idea that we have to create a future that, like you were saying, we're participating in what's emerging here now, what's emerging here now in the way that an anthill is imminent yet transcendent to the ants is not something that necessarily we have any direct control or over or knowledge of, you know? And then also... You know, we ought to, I think, question the enculturated emphasis on inventing something that doesn't already exist. I, you know, it seems that there is there there's a sense in which all of this stuff is here already, and it's just a matter of getting it properly... We haven't incorporated and processed it yet. Right, right. We haven't no chewed the food of 100 years of... Incorporate and process it from, because we have to check it out first. We have to prototype it. We have to run through a bunch of risk analysis. We have to make sure everyone has a say. Then we have to see, well, have we done this before? And we have to go venture out into all those communities that we haven't even reported yet. I'll, I'll give you a model. Please. The model is humans are, as relationships, is the key to life. Surround yourself with people that you love and trust and go through life, and that's the model. And all the, all the, the big collaborative yeah. networks and stuff, it's, it's not, those other models are just not important. The important thing is for you to connect with other people and make life better. Well, and, and to underscore that, what I was going to say is that in my exploration of uh, you know how do how do how do I make this work for me? You know, like I, I find myself now working on uh, in many projects, but the two that I'm really loving the most is I'm I work in a co-op with John and a few others. It's this co-op model of web development, and we're using technology to work with one another, but we also meet face to face. There's a certain feeling of family, and there's no feeling of hierarchy. There's just this emergence that happens. You know, if there's a problem that needs to be solved, we talk it through. It's it's fascinating to me. So I've got that on one side. And on the other side, I'm working with a collaborative model of women. So <laughs> the co-op of men. But the co-op I'm with, there, there's women in that too. But right now we're uh, working on developing a, a wisdom portal. So it's using technology to disseminate ancient tools for collaboration and, and mentorship and moving through life and so on and so forth and then it's the same thing it's my friend Stephanie here that it's her vision but she threw it out there to like about 20 women and it's just narrowed down to the group that felt like it could work together right and it's just emerging 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 I don't know how that's working or why that's working I'm just paying attention to both 
And I find it really fascinating that it's, for me, it's answering something of, uh, you know, being, I, I was a loner for years because, you know, I was in that whole model of got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm a single mother because mm-hmm. I made my bed. I got a lion and mm-hmm. all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was painful and it was lonely. And I was like, I need help. And like, now it's starting to bloom. It's really fascinating. I'm not, I can't like place it or, or qualify it, but it's happening. I'm just paying Isn't attention to it. Let's, 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 yeah. Okay. Uh, three pointed questions. One, what about maintenance? Uh, <laughs> we talk a lot about innovation, nobody talks about maintenance. Hmm. Uh, we have crumbling infrastructure, nobody's talking about how we're going to deal with it in any real kind of a way. Uh, we're building all this new infrastructure. No one's talking about how that's going to be maintained in any kind of real way. Uh, two, what about side effects of automation? Addiction is something that's come up a lot lately. Uh, diminished skills, something that Nicholas Carr wrote quite a bit about. Um, thought limitations and over-reliance on ideological thought, something that we're all suffering from on the political sphere. Uh, number three, what about ways that uh, technologists are convincing us of visions that define the laws of physics, as Michael brought up early in the uh, intro? Mm. Well, I can jump a little bit off sort of the vaguely defined laws of physics part where I'll just get a little bit computer science computational to talk about, like, you know, one of the benefits of swarm intelligence is it's incredibly computationally efficient. Like, these direct peer-to-peer interactions among these AI agents, and to extend it to the metaphor of among human beings, they work. They're very efficient. They don't need central direction. And when you create this panopticon of surveillance to sort of order everything to work the way it's supposed to work so we can all build this grand thing, it's incredibly computationally inefficient because that thing has to know what everything in the universe is doing at any one time. And no one agent can take that on. It grinds to a halt. So, you know, maybe if we don't want our infrastructure to grind to a halt and not function anymore, we really need to foster those local direct connections that can respond quickly and rapidly to the local needs. And then the magic of the swarm intelligence does its thing, and next thing you know, the whole thing is working. So the answer is magic. Yes, actually. <laughs> the answer is always magic. <laughs> well, I mean, let's just, let's just say that, that, you know, to the sense that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, right? Arthur C. Clarke's third law, that the problem that we're having with this notion that we can make a desperate Hail Mary pass and break from history and move into a completely different sphere of operations is because we're failing to recognize what the actual critical so-called new technologies of this era really are. We're so involved in projecting our own. I mean, you know, Bill Thompson was saying this at the edge of at the edge of history in 1972 that we tend to, as you know, and science fiction and speculation generally does this, that we tend to, in our discussions of the future, actually be, we're just really portraiting the world as it is now. We've just exaggerated or caricatured the, the qualities that are on display. So with respect to automation and, and Nick Carr's book, uh, Glass Cage, yeah. Like one of the one of the things that I found most interesting about that particular work was that 
he's saying that really, in a sense, the future of automation is a return to a, an ergonomic design that emphasizes the way that people actually learn and think, and that it's not about designing better software, it's about designing better human software interaction, you know, and, and ways that, that um, so that, so the magic is what we're not calling science, but what is actually, in some, like, we just, we have to ex sort of digest these categorical distinctions between, like, habits that we that, that take on a, a sort of religious import, uh, like our economic participation and scientific inquiry, which really extends to even like you know internal psychological investigation. Like humanizing it. Yeah, humanizing it. The ergonomics ultimately being the way in which technology becomes humanized, where the humans become in charge of the technology rather than uh, the humans being sort of subservient to a centralized technology around which everything is designed. Or, or, or maybe just in general noticing ways that our categories are getting in the way of us thinking effectively about these things. You know, noticing that it's not you don't get into that like human versus technology thing. It's like, well in a, you know, cybernetic feedback loop, it's a chicken or egg kind of issue. And it's more about the health of a system than it is about one piece of it getting back on top. I mean, the same as, I hope you would agree the same is true in like gender and race relations. It's a, you know, it's about healing the entire community. Right, so. but there's also like a fact that it has had already an effect on human beings using these things, where they are some to various degrees very stuck in particular ways of thinking about technology or about the world around them as an effect of technology. I feel like thought waves coming off of you, Heather. Am I wrong? Do you have? There's like a <laughs> <laughs> yes, there are always thought waves coming off of me that I care not to share at the moment. Okay. <laughs> I notice a uh, hand yeah. of audience. So I'm a technologist that makes social media software, so it's all my fault. <laughs> <laughs> so, but let's, uh, the other point, or the, the main point I'd like to make is that all of the pathologies that we talk about for social media that are supposed to help community creation, we also identified these pathologies before we created the technology. The daily me was a thought from the 80s. Like, this is not a new thought. The fact that there are Facebook echo chambers and Twitter echo chambers and MySpace echo chambers, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, were to be expected. And as a technologist, I built the technologies that did not allow human connection. I allowed polemical statements. And uh, as, a, as a result, in fact, that I was also on the HTML working group, okay? So you can blame the fact that the language of the web is broken on me, too. Okay. Uh, I'll take all blame. Okay. Um, but that's also the point is that we knew when we created the web as a publishing medium that we did not think through the human connections or other values that should have gone into it, even though we knew intellectually that we had not done so. And I think that's part of the thing we have broken. We broke the community. We broke the broader community. I think the fact that a Trump voter doesn't think they can talk to me is part of my 
sin. Okay, because they've gotten together and communicate to themselves and don't believe they have a bridge to people like me. And I think they are wrong. And I try to reach out to them. The wrongness isn't their Trumpism. The wrongness is that they don't think they have a connection to me as a human. And we have said, the technology I built has, has failed at that. So the, the thing that I think we've broken, that you talked about having broken in 2012, was that resurgence. So I'd like the panel to sort of talk about how do we fix it? And then I'll go fix it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about it. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll wave that magic wand. I have that. Okay. So, yeah, so I guess for me, I mean, I'll just say that humans are messy and inefficient and yet beautiful. And there is a, there is this need, I'm not a technologist, but this need to make things efficient and not messy. And, <laughs> you know, line by line, you know, everything is done. And if it doesn't get fixed, it is broken. But I come from the world where if we're not broken, I got no stories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I like it that way. Mm-hmm. So is there room to have inefficient sort of <laughs> technologies that 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 continually complicate our lives? I mean I, I mean, I'm really not answering your question, but well, that's just what I, I have to say on it. I would say I made it too efficient. That's what that's my point, is is that if it began in a place of efficiency and it didn't take into account the messy, complicated layers of human beingness, then then can it be resolved? And for me, it's like, do we want it to be resolved? But that also has, what you're talking about also has its roots in, like, cap, in the capitalist venture. Right. Right, because it's always been about how come, you know, ever since the Industrial Revolution, it's been how can we eliminate humans from the equation? <laughs> right. Like, how can we get fewer workers to work on this so I can pay them less and take home more money? Well, you know, well, I guess I have to sort of talk about the ultimate virtual realities, the stories we all tell ourselves as a culture. Um, one thing I've often commented on when we look at past sci-fi stories that try to predict the future, they always talk about, you know, they either predict this utopian perfect world or this complete dystopian hellscape. And I've always said, none of them got it right. The future is messy technology that is aggravatingly hard to deal with. We all we don't spend half our days in utopian paradise or dystopian hell. We're trying to get the dang computer to work, you know? And, and maybe the problem is in the stories we're telling. Maybe we're setting up false narratives and false expectations for how to live and how to communicate with each other. Maybe... We need to start telling each other better stories again. There's yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to add on to the, the bits and pieces about where it was saying, like, well, what if instead of trying to make perfect objects or instead of trying to make perfect systems, that is actually going to be the uh, crux of it because as humans, we are imperfect. We make things that aren't going to be fundamentally imperfect. And through that, we wind up going to collaborative efforts to fix those problems. If we didn't have a problem to fix, how would we work together? I mean, even if we're talking about uh, biology or science, it's always that fundamental need to overcome something, that fundamental need to break through and either become successful, stumble and fail, or fall down, get scraped, and get picked up by everybody else. 
what if instead of looking for something that is perfect, which is never going to happen, that's just a fact, we can try our best, but because we are human, because we are who we are and the influences that we have, that's what makes us powerful as a group. We all have different things to contribute, we all have different thoughts, we all have different skills, but if you took out the problem, well then what is everybody going to work on? What are we as a species going to work towards? So this issue of this issue of efficient or inefficient, I find really fascinating. Looking at it in the through the frame of evolutionary dynamics, and that you know sexual reproduction, syntactic language, multicellularity, all of these things are examples where the selection process favors a combinatorial approach over an additive approach. And that the the thing is is in a, in a kind of like a Stanford design school sense, it's rapid ideation, fail as many times as quickly as possible, and something will come up. Or like the the recent research that was done on uh, crowdsourcing intelligence, where they you know they they had a bunch of random people they pulled off the street predict geopolitical events six months out and they averaged it and they found that the the average of all of these random non-intelligent agency professionals was was able to predict something at least as good as the people who were trained in this field uh, which is a lot like the work that to get a little kooky uh, Cliff High of Half Past Human who uses a swarm of web bots to do linguistic analysis on web traffic and claims basically that we are in aggregate that we know the future and that you can actually detect in the patterns of the emotional intensity of specific words and their relationships that people seem to know months in advance of you know major fluctuations in the stock market or political events or like even think weird things you wouldn't anticipate like a terrorist attack that there's something in the the field of our collective imagination just below the threshold of our awareness that when you look at it from space that you can actually see this stuff coming down the pike and so there's you know the question is in a, in a sense like how do we disabuse ourselves of these notions of efficiency and inefficiency entirely and and start looking at the place where the two different views of information, information as the opposite of randomness or a perfectly random string of numbers as having the most information because it can't be compressed. You know, the, like Claude Shannon and, and Boltzmann, they have kind of like two paradoxically opposed views of information, one is that information is the opposite of entropy, and one is that information and entropy are the same thing. And so, you know, these are, again, with like the sort of digestion of past and future, like if this is all about, from one lens, everything is running up to some massive universe brain, everything's connecting to everything. In another sense, it's it's a decay, you know, into into noise. But if randomness is the highest information that we can have, then we're looking at this all wrong. I'm, I'm seeing a, I'm seeing an image in my head going back to that whole you know intelligence father metaphysical mother thing. 
I got two sides. I was I was shown two ways of moving in the world. One was anally retentively efficient because it's the military, and then the other was my mother, which was like be interested in everything. Um, interact with all different kinds of people, learn from everything and anyone you come across, and so on and so forth. And while you were talking, I realized that the way I've learned to move in the world now is neither one nor the other. There's it ha- Each has its own time. And I go into these times where I feel like an amorphous blob of information gathering and idea sparking and connecting with people, and then I come to the point where it goes into this sort of hierarchical thing for a brief time to, to direct action, and then it dissipates again. It's, it's like this sort of in-breathing and out-breathing of neither one nor the other. But I just see the people that are all about, I mean, I see all the people around me that are, let me give you an example. I did a job a few years ago where we had to do an um, immersive experience for an unnamed semiconductor company that we went out to Silicon Valley to visit. And we walked into that building, and I felt crushed under the weight of everyone trying to outachieve one another and outperfect one another. They all looked horribly unhappy. And, and they were given everything. They had the fabulous meals, and they had their, you know, ping pong tables, <laughs> whatever the hell, you know, all that stuff. But everybody looked miserable. They, you know, I could just feel them because I used to live in that world. Mm-hmm. It's like you got to outperform everybody, outperform. And like, what are you all racing toward? That's what I was sitting there thinking. What are you racing? I get it, but what are you all racing toward? And you'll never be more perfect than the next person. You'll never get there. Right, And for me, I'm more about, um, you know, the way I move in the world now is all about um, everything in its own time. It works. It really works. Um, Not pushing the river, not trying to dismantle the obstructions, but flowing around them and building on the other side something different and new. I know I'm being kind of woo-woo, wishy-washy, but that's what I'm Well, I, I'm about to be a little woo myself, actually. <laughs> despite, you know, despite being a scientist, I have that more metaphysical component as well. And, I mean, I, you talking about those tech jobs, that gave me a brief flashback to when I briefly had one of those jobs in San Fran. And I think I felt very similar things to you. And I think you were sensing that that is ultimately a virtual reality. And it has no relation with a human reality in any way. And, you know, I guess just speaking of my own sort of way to navigate this paradox of existence, to to do my own woo reference, I I like to think of uh, some of the stuff that um, Robert Anton Wilson likes to talk about. Specifically, he informed me of the work of this philosopher who I'm not going to remember his name, but I remember what he came up with. So if you Google this, you can learn more. But he, in the 1930s, invented this alternative to the English language called E-prime for English prime. And the thing about English prime is you are not allowed to use any variance of to be statements in English prime. You may not say, I am a scientist in English prime. That, that's a forbidden sentence. You can't say, he is a father. You can't say that in English Prime. You cannot make statements that are just declarative to be factual statements. What you instead have to say is you have to contextualize all those statements with a place, a time, and a current belief 
In other words, it is a language that says existence is not known, it is probabilistic. Specifically, to sort of paraphrase Anton Wilson's thoughts on the subject, he basically says, I think people who believe in UFOs are foolish, but I also think people who don't believe in UFOs are (laughs) foolish. Basically, we can be very certain of certain things, but it is embracing that inherent uncertainty that will always be at the core of existence. Existence is not tidy, and it never will be. Well, this kind of makes me think about, uh, you know, earlier y'all had talked about how, uh, I guess briefly you had touched on uh, Buddhism and, and kind of the idea of, you know, it's not a new idea of virtual reality, so there being a certain falseness to the nature of reality. The, all the early mystics of pretty much any faith you can name make references to kind of uh, there being higher levels of understanding beyond kind of the basic physical substrate in which we exist. And um, and so, you know, y'all were kind of talking about how some of these ideas that uh, virtual realities and things like that, you know, what is innovation? Are these problems new? Are these the same old problems just in new variations, new forms? Is it a new coat over them? And um, and it, it kind of made me think about, you know, when you're talking about what's the, the perfect kind of system or what kinds of innovations can we use to make the Internet more humanistic, to make it more something that empowers people, that brings people together instead of something that is uh, used perhaps to uh, impose certain uh, narratives or certain specifically chosen virtual realities that may benefit uh, certain people. And um, one of the things I was kind of thinking about with that is Godel's incompleteness theorem. And any time you try and make some type of uh, overarching system, anytime you, you find a solution to a problem or kind of name all the rules within uh, a specific system, you're, you're creating a paradox right there. And so there's always kind of uh, something, a new thing outside of that system that kind of further evolves things. So perhaps it is always these same dichotomies, these same dualities competing with each other, evolving throughout time, but we're just simply seeing them continually complexify and become these larger systems, but there's not perhaps an ultimate goal or uh, uh, final form that can be reached because that's the nature of what this physical or uh, substrate itself that we exist within is. And so I just want to hear some of y'all's thoughts on, on some of those ideas. I've even debated mentioning Godel's incompleteness theorem. I didn't want my answer to be too long. It probably would have been <laughs> That's just a theory. <laughs> well, I, in a way, this kind of, you know, one of the things I was excited, not to put you on the spot, Paul, but one of the things I was excited about having a game person on this panel, to uh, one of the reasons for that was because I think about the argument from evolutionary game theory that lying is persistent, that you can't actually... In a system where a small number of agents can effectively or successfully or whatever, we've already eaten those words, but like um, can deceive people uh, or other agents for their own benefit, at least in the short term, there's always going to be a certain background level of deceit in the system until, like, if it reaches above that threshold, then we end up in one of those where it, it flips and the, the message that was originally false becomes true in its negative image. 
you know, and so I think we're all like living in this space now where certain things, you know, where it's common knowledge that Fox News is lying to you. And so you you read it the opposite way until they they wise up to that and start sending you <laughs> real news so that you think it's fake, you know. <laughs> and so and so, you know, the this issue of there being what, you know, Bucky Fuller talks about like the tensegrity, you know, that there's there's a sort of a a dynamic equilibrium between these different worldviews, different strategies, and that that's uh, persistent in this. So I'm, I'm curious, in, in light of all of that, like what the study of games has lended to your understanding of moving into this world that we're moving into, or. Well, game theory is is really done by economics uh, economists. So, so it has nothing to do with making games or or developing games or or thinking about games, except for the fact that they kind of gain some theory that they have. Um, like the president's dilemma is a game. If you want to think about it in those terms, uh, so I don't usually think about game theory very much at all. In, in regards to predicting the future. Uh, the thing that you learn like, with games is that uh, play is emergent and that uh, you create a, a set of rules and you let the players play it and whatever emerges uh, from their playing is different for every player uh, and every time they play or else it gets pretty boring after a while. So, um, it, you know, for instance, tic-tac-toe is pretty boring after a while. Uh, it, it, I guess you could call that having emergent uh, behavior and, and emergent play, but uh, you can pretty much solve it. And once you solve it, it's no longer really a game game to play. There's also the possibility that you know you can solve chess too, but the the the, the number of possibilities is so large that a, a human can't solve it. Um, the computers have been able to do that. So the the uh, so that's why predicting the future is very hard because we're we have a you know very simple systems can have a very large amount of uh, of emergent behavior. Humans are uh, a single humans is, is nearly infinitely complex, uh, and then you have six billion of them uh, interacting with each other. Uh, then the it's really difficult to predict because it can go any different direction um, based on stuff. Only in retrospect, maybe we get an action. I don't even think in retrospect we can understand it. That's, that's assuming that we understood history. We don't, right? So we can't even agree on, on history. Uh, so it is, um, and that's what I take away from, from games as a theory about the future. So we're playing a game where our, our new history is literally slowly erasing itself. So we can't even learn from our own game. Well, not easily, anyway. Uh, yeah. So uh, I have uh, determined that really it's very difficult for us to learn from history um, as humans, and and I I base that on that we teach history as if it was actual, and 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 therefore people don't really feel it, and therefore they don't really understand it, and and can make decisions about it. I mean, you know, like. Wow, who could have predicted that if we invaded Iraq that it was going to be a big mess afterwards? Not like it wasn't done 50 years, literally 50 years earlier by Churchill. 
um, and 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 nobody, you know, like it was, it was factually that was what people understood, but they couldn't feel it. And and getting connecting this back in some weird way to virtual reality. What I'm hoping is that we'll actually teach history in a very like you feel it, mm-hmm. like you like you'll go out mm-hmm. there and be in. Uh, Iraq and in in the nineteen well, when was he in, in there in the nineteen twenties or something like that and uh, with Winston Churchill and and seeing the chaos and feeling the chaos and and learning that all these different tribes over there are all fighting with each other and that they're that and that you being there is the thing that unites them against the, you know and and all kinds of the whole mess of the, of it instead of just a set of facts. Yeah, this brings to mind the uh, 360 short film Clouds Over Sidra. Is anybody familiar with that about being in a Syrian refugee camp? Yeah, I think I may have heard about that. Yeah, that, that seems very poignant in relation to this because that has uh, brought a lot of people closer to more viscerally experiencing that from a distance in an immersive space. Mm-hmm. Clouds Over Sidra is worth looking into. They're, they're having a lot of trouble getting journalists and other people into refugee camps, um, not just in Syria, but in Germany and in Greece, like the whole migration pattern. And it's getting harder and harder for people to bring cameras into those spaces so that we can understand what's going on outside the space to even help them. And I think that there's a couple, there's like a couple of other projects similar to that that are underway right now. I think like I've seen a couple of Kickstarters around it. But so here's the thing. We don't have enough data to say whether or not that actually is having an effect, right? Like whether or not that kind of immersive going in those environments, it's so fresh right now, like the problems are still there, you know, just going into that camp, what does that do? I mean, it's very, you know, it's sort of like doing humanitarian work. You're one person against a really ridiculous odds of trying to help of enormous problem. And um, anyway, I just wanted to throw, I mean, it's worth a shot to do it, but, you know, I don't know if it's going to solve anything either. You know, it's not an end game. You can't solve the game. You, you know, this isn't a gaming issue. I know. I, I have something else I want to I don't care, though. <laughs> but yeah. what you're saying is it's really great to have these opportunities to learn about these different things yeah. that might really upset them to learn about it, but they're going to choose to not. Because it'd be upsetting. But right, that's what that's what I mean. Like, how do you? I mean, people want to be entertained. Yeah. They want to laugh. They you know, like if I come home from a long day of working in the capitalist system, getting paid, like uh, working for somebody who I don't like, do I really want to engage in that story? It takes a different kind of like sentiment to really want to engage. You know, and the, lots of filmmakers have tried to do this. You know, you focus on a child, you focus on a dog. You know. Well, when did the when did the, my daughter and I were having a discussion? We talk about this a lot. My daughter's twenty, I'm fifty three, and we, um, you know, I was saying I remember being a kid, being you know, we were close enough still to World War II. You know, there was this feeling of you're still in the after, yeah, in the Cold War and all that. And I I, I was telling my, we were watching that Twilight Zone episode where the commandant goes back to Dachau. Uh And and she was raised on the Twilight Zone, thank God. I did something. (laughs) Um, But, uh, (laughs) you know, we were talking about that. You know, she said it just doesn't have 
a visceral effect on on kids. Her her. I mean, for her, certain kids, yes. But you know, but I told her like, God, I I I remember like being in seventh grade and we read John Hersey's Hiroshima and we watched the footage from Hiroshima and, and you know, we talked about it and we all just, all us kids were crying and we felt it and we're like, we don't want a world like that. We don't, where did that go? When, when, where did that go? It seems it just doesn't, it's like, whoosh, you know. It is in the theater, yeah. I will remind us. I mean, it is yeah, a exactly. visceral experience, exactly. but yes. <laughs> So th- this, it seems like there's a connection here between this particular issue, which is the establishing of a historical continuity, and then this, this issue of maintenance, right? And it's like, to the degree that our society becomes more and more informational in its like explicit emphasis, then more and more of the infrastructure is transparently our stories and the transmission of culture you know and the, the I mean this is one of the reasons why like, the main one of the main influences for this podcast is the Long Now Foundation right and right like maybe maybe part of being ergonomic means paying attention to not getting overwhelmed you know not overwhelming the, the society right but the, but the complexity that we have to manage now with the transmission of story is like I guess you look at like where you can kind of argue that human culture began and it's right around the time that we start being uh, socially organized and well nourished therefore well nourished enough that people are able to live long enough to become grandparents and that there's an emergence of an, a new type of entity which is the elder you know that's not totally preoccupied with raising children and you see this in orcas too like they've got it they have they have grandmas you know and there's it's now an argument in the evolutionary sciences that that that's the reason why we don't remain sexually generative through the inter- that we live longer than we reproduce mm-hmm. is because it's the actual unit of selection now is the, the entire community of people, you know. So I mean, we're at the heart, I think, of where I hoped that this would go. And I'll and we only have like ten or fifteen minutes left, so I really want to leave it to the esteemed experts on this what panel. People yeah, but, <laughs> and all of we're, we're faceless. No, no. <laughs> we do have another hour to talk about this stuff too. Um, at, down at the the firehouse. Yes. The point is. How, how can we be good ancestors in a world as turbulent as this world? Or how can we cultivate this kind of eldership and I, I, wisdom? And if anyone can answer this, I guess. Uh, yeah. well, <laughs> well, we'll get to the panel in a second. I want to get back to your, your point about there being a connection between you know, involvement, which is what you were saying, and maintenance. And I think it ties back to the perfection statement as well. It's that utopian thinking that we're all busy trying to design a system that is going to be perfect and take care of everything. Mm-hmm. And the failure of utopian thinking is that unless everyone that's involved in that system is accountable and on board with that system, it never works. I mean, libertarian works. You know, you know, libertarian philosophy looks great on paper. Communism looks great on paper. But unless everybody that's involved in that system participates and is it accountable, it doesn't work. So I think the the big thing that we have to solve isn't all this nuance. It's 
how do you encourage people to be accountable? Especially in the face of a culture that punishes failure. You know, how do we get adults to be back in that system where, you know, you're in kindergarten and there's there's no such thing as failure. You're learning, you know. So how do we get that mindset back into active culture and get people who want to be involved and accountable? Because as long as we try to build some sort of system that's going to handle everything for us, then sociopaths are just going to come in, you know, take that system over and abuse it. And so we have to engender accountability, I think, above and beyond anything else. So um, Maggie really brought up the notion of balance when she talked about her two parents' worldviews. And what I've really heard throughout the evening is the focus of the Internet really being about efficiency and problem-solving. And I think that both of those things are fine in and of themselves, but I think they're highly unbalanced when you only go that direction. So Dr. Deming was not exactly a woo-woo kind of person, but he understood that efficiency had to be balanced with effectiveness Otherwise, you could be totally efficient at doing something that was horrifying. Humanity <laughs> <Right? laughs> I mean, doesn't know anything about yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> as in do the right thing right the first time. And we have gotten so indoctrinated into efficiency, we have totally lost sight. Is this even taking us somewhere we want to go? Mm-hmm. And then on the problem-solving side, I'm not hearing nurturance, and I'm not hearing life-giving forces. So going back to the refugee problem, if you go back to root cause, if we gave resources to all children to find their unique contribution in the world, we could do a lot of this stuff, but we keep chasing these problems that are unsolvable because the horse is way out of the barn. I mean way out of the barn. So until we can find some balance so that the Internet can be designed to give people an experience of a nurturing community, um, you know, that I think is what, at least in our project, we're really interested in figuring out how to do, because I think we're just wildly out of balance at this point. Why do you think the internet can do that? I think it can, but I think it wasn't designed to do that. Going back to your point, I don't think it was designed. I never thought it was focused on efficiency. I mean, there's some efficiency in the way that the medium works. It's actually kind of inefficient. Safety. Safety can be an oppressive matter. Well, it was designed to resist disruption, you know, to rattle around it. But I I don't know. I don't think that it, I certainly don't think that people's use of the internet is terribly efficient. Well, I'm I'm just saying in general, I'm just very sensitive to the notion of how often the word efficiency is used rarely balanced by effectiveness. I mean, all you have to do is look at Texas state government (laughs) which only talks about efficiency. Are you sure it's efficient? (laughs) (laughs) It's close to turning us all into paper clips. You get very inefficient, trying to be only inefficient and not looking at effectiveness. So I'm just saying. I'd like to actually ask that question about email. Can you guys envision a a world without email? Yes. <laughs> my, children, my, my children don't like to use email. Right, I like to use Snapchat. No, but they use Snapchat. 
Yeah. I, I would like to address the, the grandma orca problem. Um, as one of the older engineers in the room, and I'm looking at, looking at this meetup has many more older people than the normal meetups in Capital Factory. We definitely, in addition to the, the groups of, of uh, different diversities that we don't embrace in our technology, we also don't have a way to allow people to interact across ages. So, for example, you mentioned email. My daughter does not use email. Right. And I do, and my community uses email. In fact, on the board, we've got a battle about using freaking email versus website versus other things. So, these cultural crossovers are really quite difficult in terms of time. I grew up with email. Um, literally, I mean, and I've been to the IETF meetings. Okay, I, I, I'll, you can play email on me. Too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Go by the likeness of our beard. Right. Let's start talking about the American spirit. The we American. have five minutes. Can we wait? There was a question over there. Yeah. With and a really short suggestion, speaking of a balance to jump off of that and being good ancestors. Um, recently, I found it really useful. Uh, a type of model or heuristic or lens to view things through is to look at the archetypes of the elements, air, water, earth, and fire, and to put those goggles on and to see if there is balance in any sort of endeavor. I just want to offer that as a way to, to move forward. So to humor our host, who I think wants a final thought from each of the actual panelists, um, if I'm reading you right, Michael. I really don't want this conversation to end, but... It has to. <laughs> so, All right. if any of you feel, if anyone feels compelled to say something, uh, please do. Invite you know, to be a part. Of it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I guess just to go. Do this again. Uh, yeah, I mean, this has been an immense success, Michael. So we'll talk about that. <laughs> That's it. I think it is. I no longer know what a success is. Mm. Well, good. That means you learned something from this talk. I <laughs> guess <laughs> um, just to, just to close my brief thoughts on this, I think I think the solutions are going to need to be two prompt. One, I think there are technological solutions we can potentially take. Like anybody who knows me knows, I'm a big advocate of finding ways to decentralize and peer-to-peer and encrypt the internet and make it new, shiny, and better. So I do think there are certain technological initiatives we can take to try to address some of these problems, to make the technology more facilitate these human-directed interactions we're all have been circling around as maybe the thing lacking that we need to reconnect with. And I think also there is an element of needing to create new uniting stories to tell ourselves, basically. Like, a lot of our old stories, they've, like, stopped working in this world of no foundation because they preach a hero's journey with an end, with an answer. They also preach a journey that, um, to talk about the diversity and inclusiveness that has been brought up beginning in tonight, they preach a journey that is white and male and not terribly inclusive. So I think... It's up to all of us to try to use stories as a way to build consensus on the kind of messy, imperfect world we all want to go into together. By the way, um, I rented a number of years ago the domain name Reframe the Story <laughs> for that very reason. Yes. So, and I, I agree with that. And, you know, as I so crabbily brought up earlier, you know, uh, anybody telling me how, how my life is supposed to look or what adventures I can and cannot have or how it's supposed to be, I've always asked, 
what committee decided all this. I wasn't on the committee. I don't remember it happening. I don't remember when they posted the rules. But I've tried to do that for um, um, my daughter, too, you know, and, and she's tired of the questions like, so what are you going to do after college? What do you, like, I'll, I don't know. Well, you know, it's all, it, it doesn't have to follow a pattern. And I would love to see the promise of technology, you know, find new ways that we can localize it to help people at the local level use it in, in ways to, 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 to connect here and then, because it just feels like we're so disconnected and there's all these tools to connect. I mean, it'd be great if we had neighborhoods that had their own water system and their own electricity and their own network. It just seems that's the way everything's going. And those are the problems I want to work on. Mm-hmm. Right now, so. mm-hmm. Any thoughts from the rest of the panel? Well, I guess I'm next. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm pretty much in agreement, I think. Uh, I think the thing that, that we're, I mean, this being a technology thing, I guess it, it lends itself to having a discussion about technology, but I want to get back to um, maybe maybe the technology would be good if we organize ourselves to have more human interaction. Um, getting back to, you know, the Trump people, uh, a lot of it has to do with uh, the stories that I understand is uh, for a variety of stories. One is a researcher went into a community of highly conservative people and she didn't realize that uh, that they would hate her but she didn't know that so she went in there and started talking to them and, and interacting with them and after a while they said you know what we kind of like you uh, and it turns out that that personal interaction uh, you know they, 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 they gave up the idea that they were going to hate the academic and that they because that person was a, a real person in their presence I think the, the issue of, of trying to trying to com- connect with people through the internet and technologies is 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 sort of very superficial, and that the idea that you really need to connect to them on a on a person to person level. The uh, another story is uh, I, I read was a person who every time a black person was on the TV, his father would say a bunch of bad words about that person, and then one day he asked, "Well, is?" Uh, you know, Bob Henry down the road's black, but I don't hear you say that, that those words about him. Oh no, Bob Henry's an outstanding person. Like, like you know, he's great. But these people on TV, uh, these black people on TVs are whatever, right? Uh, so again, it was that personal, uh, interpersonal relationships that that drove that. Uh, and so, you know, perhaps we can use the technology to help organize these activities, but we need to have much more interpersonal relationships with the people that are of different um, different from us. And as I look across this room, uh, I could say that, that uh, we are clearly not that diverse uh, here and that we need to maybe develop some more interpersonal relationships with people that are of different diversity and bring them into these kinds of conversations. We're working on it, but thank you for pointing that out. We could do one of these a dozen street. That'd be kind of cool. Um, I, I, I want to sort of echo a little bit around the use of technology to solving some problems that are imminent, especially ecological collapse. And if earth, air, fire, and water is speaking, if they are speaking right now, they want us to help them. And um, again, not a technologist with the tech tech, but very willing 
to cooperate with people on doing those things as a theater maker, an art maker, a filmmaker who thinks that the key is, you know, to grab them here first. And then, and then all these other things that we're talking about can be resolved. Because if you don't feel it, you're not going to want to engage in it. You're not going to want to do anything about it. You know, if you make me really interested in, you know, a, a crab that lives on the Texas coast that's endangered that I know nothing about, but if I see a children's play with a crab in it about the Texas coast, something's going to shift. I mean, it's just the way it is. That's how our human brains work. We cling to story and images and experience more than we do computations. Now, I might be wrong about that, but... <laughs> I did my best to break that. <laughs> but anyway, so that's how I hope to contribute in sort of, you know, in some of these the tensions that we're having right now around this amazing topic, which I think should be an, a new course at UT, and I'd be happy to guest speak. <laughs> Given that there's thousands of courses at UT, I bet you there is already a course on, on, on this, or at least a, a, a sub-part of a course. Be awesome. <laughs> right. That's a good idea, Mike. It's a good idea. Well, friends, that was messy. I hope you enjoy messy. I would love to see you guys at the firehouse, but if you cannot make it for the little schmoozing booze after this, then I hope you'll uh, grab a card or leave your, your email up here, and I can keep you posted about the two-part John Lipkowski EFF history that's come out on the show. we got another real interesting episode we just put out was with Mitch Altman. He uh, co-founded the Noisebridge Hackerspace in San Francisco and uh, was instrumental in the early years of Maker Faire. Uh, he just did an episode with us. Uh, we've had people of all different walks of life on the show because the whole the goal is to work on establishing one of many repositories of experience and wisdom and to encourage curiosity and long-term thinking. And I hope that we have done that for you today. And I'm honored that you all took the time to come up here. And you all took the time to come up here. And I thank you. And I hope that I get to chat with every one of you at some point tonight. So I'd like to thank This has been one of my most favorite discussions we've had here at EFF Austin, not just because I was in it. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod network, along with Third Eye Drops, The Astral Hustle, Synchronicity Podcast, and an oodle of other fascinating programs. I encourage you to go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. And stay tuned, because we have some awesome episodes coming up on future fossils. But for now, may your now be exquisite, long, and wonderful.